words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please sit. There is an image, a meme, that went around on Facebook a couple of weeks ago that sort of caught my attention and fits with his story, and I, I sort of now can't see the gospel without it, so I have to share it with you at the top of the sermon. And what it does is divide people into two categories, um, people who don't believe in God, um, but think they understand religion, is the first line. And the second line is people who do believe in God and at least have a little bit of a handle on religion of various forms. And so the first line says, I messed up, I'm in trouble, I really don't want my parents to know. And the second line says, I messed up, I'm in trouble, I need to call home. The difference between believing in God and not believing in God. In the Gospel this morning, we hear this iconic story that has been told in film and in script and in paint and in stone all over the world for generations because, like every good story, there are impossible pieces to this parable that just don't make sense. Like every good story, you, you sort of need something to get behind that just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. It just doesn't seem possible. It just doesn't seem like it can be realized. And there's two pieces in the gospel today that I think are profoundly impossible. So we have this son who asks, first of all, for his inheritance, which in context we have to understand is really insulting. Like you might think it's insulting now to sort of go to your parents and say, could you give me what I'm going to inherit now? I'd like to go use it. But at the time, it was sort of like him disowning his family. He was cashing out. He was saying, can I have what's mine so I can go do something else? And he takes his money, and he spends it all. And the gospel tells us a little bit about how he spends it, not in a good way. And then he realizes, as a famine comes on the land that he now lives in, that he has no one to lean on. He has no family, no friends no connection, and no money to spend, and no one is going to help him. So he goes and gets a job, and he realizes that the pigs he's feeding are eating better than him. And I have to imagine that for him, that was one of those take stock moments that we've all had, when you sort of stop in time and look around and say, okay, so I messed this up, and I don't really know how to unwind it. I don't know how to come back from it. But he decides knowing his father the way he does, that he can trust in the fact that his father is a good man, a just man. And so he says, I'm going to go home. I don't expect to be welcomed as a son, but perhaps you will give me a job, and I will work in the fields I would have inherited like a hired hand. Trusting in the relationship, that's what he does. He turns himself around, he goes back to the place he came from, he risks sort of the shame of that, and then the most amazing thing happens. He's walking down the road, his father sees him from a distance, and runs out to meet him. Now to understand this, this scene, you really need to try and imagine it, because this man was a man of wealth and of stature, he was probably wearing a lot of 
heavy, fine garment, probably a little bit actually like what I'm wearing. So to run, he would have had to bend down, like women wearing gowns, and gather up the hem of his garment. He would have had to stoop to the ground and pick up what was dirty, hold it in his hands, and then run. There's an 18th century French painter who paints this image of him finally making contact with his son. His son is kneeling in front of him, and the father's holding him. And there's all these people sort of leaning out the doorways in the houses around them, sort of leering at them, because this would have been a profoundly embarrassing moment for the father, for a privileged, statured, wealthy man to gather up his garments and run, not just to anybody, but to a son who has disgraced himself and the whole family. So in this painting, these people are leaning out, they're judging him. This was an embarrassing moment. And he doesn't care. He is so moved by love and compassion, the gospel says, that he runs down the road. Runs down the road. Put a robe on him, put sandals on him, put a ring on him, bring him back, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have the kind of a party that you only have when you've planned for it two or three years in advance. This was a really, really special thing that the father does for the son who has returned. So the first impossible part of the story is who forgives that? Who forgives all of that? Not only did he take the money away and squander it, he, he left. He insulted his father, he spent time away, and he spent the money in a pretty horrendous way. Who forgives all of that so quickly? With no questions, no demands, the father doesn't even say, hey, that really hurt my feelings when you cashed out like that. Not a thing. Not a thing. It's just forgiven. And the second impossible part of the story is that then the father expects the older brother to do the same thing. The older brother who has done every faithful thing, who stays, who does the work, who even in the gospel passage is coming back from the field, presumably from a long day's work, and he's angry. He's angry. And who wouldn't be? This doesn't seem fair, right? So the father comes out and pleads with him, come inside. Your brother who was lost is found. Come inside. And his anger and his resentment keeps him outside, keeps him away from his family and friends who are inside, keeps him away from the feast that is inside, from the light, from the joy, from everything good that's happening inside, he chooses instead to stand outside and to grumble because he's angry and maybe a little smart at the same time. I'm willing to bet that everyone in this room has also had those moments when we make the wrong choice because we feel like our sense of fairness has been offended. And still the father pleads with him to forgive his brother. It's an impossible ask, made only relevant, I think, by the fact that the father does it first. Now, in the context of the gospel, we began with, this, with the statement that the Pharisees were the ones grumbling. And Jesus tells this parable to highlight the difference between the Pharisees and the people that he has come to save. The Pharisees are upset because they have done the faithful thing. They follow the law to the letter. They are faithful. 
They do all the things they're supposed to do. They are the religious elite. They experience a certain amount of status and privilege because of that. And here comes Jesus, who might be the Messiah. And he eats with tax collectors and sinners and outcasts. People that the religious elites have decided can be cast aside and ignored, either because they've done something wrong and they didn't follow the letter of the law, or because they just didn't like them and didn't think they fit in. And that is who Jesus is always sort of making room for. If anything defines Jesus' ministry, it's the fact that he's constantly eating with and healing and touching and feeding and finding new ways to create community for the people who have been left out. And it's no wonder that the Pharisees experience that as a, a lack of status for themselves. They're losing something. They're losing the privilege of saying that they are the faithful ones. They're losing something in their estimation. They are the older brother who did all the right things and never got the fatted calf. And in some ways, they seem to experience their relationship with God as sort of this push-pull. You know, I do this, so you do that. And that's not how God works. If anything, this parable tells us that the Father, who is the character of God, will wipe the slate clean no matter what we've done. So that's the second impossible part of this story, that we're expected to forgive each other in the same way that God forgives us, that we're expected to not keep score the way that the older brother does. But truthfully, if we think about any of the relationships that any of, we, any of us have, whether it's a, a friendship or a marriage or a relationship with a child or a parent, any relationship that has stretched over time, you know that if you just kept score, if you kept a list of what happened all the time, it would never work. There would never be a relationship that was healthy enough to live, let alone to thrive. Because if you just kept a list of who was up and who was down and you were trying to sort of make it fair and get that person back, there would be no relationship. The only thing that allows us to be connected in that way and to share good, healthy, loving relationships is the fact that love allows us to forgive. Love allows us to let go which is what God does in this parable. The father wipes the slate clean and throws a huge party the way that God wipes the slate clean for us and then asks us to do the same thing for our neighbors. It's kind of an impossible story. And both of those brothers live within, both, with, within all of us all the time. At different seasons and different moments in our lives, I think we identify with different people. So I'd ask you today which brother you are in this moment, in this season of your life. Are you the one that has fallen away and has gone away and not used the gifts you've been given? Or are you the one that feels like you've made the faithful decisions and haven't gotten back in return what you expected? In many ways, this story is a tale of two brothers, and they both live in all of us. The hard thing is that I think sometimes it's tempting to identify more with the older brother who did all the right things. And there's difficult news in the gospel for those of us who do that. The news is that we're not allowed to keep score and that we're supposed to love each other so much that we learn how to let go 
and expect that our neighbors, our brothers and sisters who have done less than we do will get the same share. That's what happens when we come to the table each week. We participate in this meal that binds us up as as God's people. We walk with our hands out. We risk being vulnerable, and we all receive the same thing, no matter what we did the week before. The good news for the seasons and moments when we feel like we are the the younger brother is that there isn't a single thing we can do, no place we can go, no sin too great, no broken law too dramatic, nothing that we can do to separate ourselves from the love of God. And that particularly in the season of Lent, and this is why we hear this story now, we are invited to turn our hearts and our bodies back to God. And all we have to do is take just the first few steps, not even the whole journey, just the first few steps, and God, with an extravagant, abundant, slightly embarrassing, over-the-top love, will run down the road to meet you. Like the parent who's kind of angry because their kid is out past curfew, but they're more worried than angry and just wants them to come home. The parent who doesn't care what their kid did, just wants them to come home. The good news of this story for all of us, because that, that younger brother lives in us too, is that no matter what we've done, no matter how long it's been, no matter what the reason is, no matter what we think we did that makes us undeserving, there is nothing that God will not forgive. And that God is waiting, scanning the horizon, looking for you to just turn and start the journey, to just take the first few steps back home. And when we do that, the promise is that that welcome those open arms, the robe, the ring, the party, all of that is only just the beginning of what is made new. It's only just the beginning of the celebration of what God can do. Amen.